Take your seats. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Now, last week we uh, ran out of time. We didn't get to do everything that we wanted to do there in Daniel chapter 10. So that's why I want to make sure we have plenty of time here tonight in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is one of those chapters where you almost need to do it all in one setting or you totally lose it. So, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to try to do the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. Now, I know no one wants to be here, but now you're stuck. So, real quick background on Daniel chapter 11. Before I took over as pastor out here, um, I served as an assistant for a while. And when Jim wasn't able to make it, he would ask me to fill in every now and then on a Sunday. And we had this ongoing joke that he would always pick a Sunday to skip when he didn't want to teach what that topic was. The first teaching that he made me do was out of Timothy where the role of women in church and women pastors. He happened to skip that Sunday for some reason, so he had me teach that one, which was always fun. And then one time he had me teach Daniel 11. Now, if you look at Daniel 11, this is a long chapter. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've taught through Daniel 11 two times, so this is the third time I taught through this. This is a tough chapter, and it's not tough because of theology. It's not tough because of um, trying to grasp it. The information in this chapter is overwhelming. Detailed, overwhelming. And a lot of it, if you're not a fan of history, you have a tendency to turn your ears off a little bit because you start dealing with stuff that happened 2,500 years ago and you start thinking, I don't care. What's the point about this? But the detail in this chapter, dare I say, is some of the most amazing prophetic detail in the entire Bible. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take this nice and easy and I hope you walk away blessed, but also hope you walk away impressed by God himself with this. So let's put the first slide up there if you don't mind, please. Now, this is a repeat of something that we just did a couple Wednesdays ago, so you should remember this from your sheets. When anytime you're studying prophecy, remember these three points. First off, Jesus said it's important to understand prophecy. Too many times I see Christians say, you know what, we're not going to be here for this, it's going to happen in the future, or it's already fulfilled prophecy from the past. What difference does it make? Jesus himself said how important it was to understand the times and seasons and understand prophecy. So if Christ said it's important, it's important. The second point there. I like this. When we know and trust that God knows the future, it helps us to realize he can and will take care of us in the present. So when I read through Daniel chapter 11 and I see all these amazing details, what do I have to worry about? If God is able to predict the future, if God knows what the future is, then why am I worried about anything that's happening in the present? God knows. And the last point, if we know how everything ends, it spurs us on to be a light and a witness. If we know Jesus is returning, then I want to tell as many friends and neighbors as I can about Christ. If I know that there's going to be a great white throne judgment where all non-believers stand before God and are sentenced to hell, I want to tell as many friends and family as I can about Christ. It spurs us on. So when I read Daniel 11 here, and the first 35 verses of Daniel 11 is fulfilled prophecy, and then from Daniel 11:36 through the end is future prophecy, it reminds me that God already knows what happened, and he already predicted that, and that means if he got verses 1 through 35 right, I bet you he's going to get verses 36 through 45 right. And the detail in this, once again, is completely and utterly amazing. It, it just really is amazing as some of the stuff we're going to go through. Can you go to the next slide, please? Now, one of the verses we're going to talk about here is this Daniel 11:19, because all these different kings we're going to talk about, this phrase pops up. He shall stumble and fall and not be found. These guys that we're talking about here tonight, and this is like the most soap opera of all soap opera chapters in the entire Bible. There is murder, there is uh, affairs, there's poisoning, there's everything you can think of. This is really just a page right out of a uh, Monday afternoon soap opera. These people rise and fall. 
Which reminds me of that verse in Proverbs. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. It's nice to know when I read about this mess that goes on for hundreds of years, if I stand on the truth of God's word, I'm going to stand. I tell you, keep it simple, folks. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Don't do it. If God says it's right, it's right. Then do it. If you're doing something you know that God says is wrong, I suggest you stop. If you're not doing something that God says is right, I suggest you start. It's that simple. But yet we live in a world where wrong is right and right is wrong. Look at Proverbs 12, 17. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. If you want to stand firm in your life, stick to God's word. So that's the application stuff. Let's see what we're getting in here tonight. We'll start in Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That's a leftover verse from last week, which then takes us into this. And now I will tell you the truth. I like this. This is truth. Behold, three more kings will rise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against all the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall rise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will when he has arisen. His kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. Now, it would be really easy right now to stop and say, okay, I'm already completely lost. Bear with me. Next slide, please. Let's just break this down nice and easy. Behold, three more kings will rise. Well, what's happening is the angel is telling Daniel... Right now, the Medes and Persians are in control. There's going to be three more kings, and you can see them right there. Cambia, Pseudo-Smyrtus, Darius one. And then they said the fourth king's going to arise, and it says the fourth king, in verse 2, shall be the richest and strongest of them all. That's Xerxes. That's the king from the book of Esther. So if you want to tie some of the stuff in together, you can. Well, what we know happens is this guy, Xerxes, gets really powerful, and guess what he wants to do? He wants to, in verse 2, pick on Greece. So he sends army after army, millions of men, constantly towards Greece. Now the problem is, for him to get his army to Greece, which we're going to get to a map here in a little bit, he's got to constantly cross this water. And so what happens is he can never truly defeat them. Now, this is a very famous thing in, in um, movies and in literature. You've probably heard the story of the 300 Spartans fighting the Persians. That's this right here. This is Xerxes trying to constantly defeat Greece. He can't do it. Well, what happens is, verse 3, a mighty king shall rise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Next slide, please. Alexander the Great comes in. And so what he does is Greece then becomes the world power. So since Greece becomes the world power, we know what happens here. Alexander the Great died young, if I remember correctly, 32. Is that correct? 30, was it? 33. He died at 33, and he died having no heirs. And so his kingdom was divided up between these four generals. Well, guess what happened here in verse 4? When he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But look, not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion. Why? He had no children. Now, this was already prophesied beforehand. God, to the detail, says there's four more kings coming. Uh, Xerxes is going to keep trying to take out Greece. And eventually, Alexander the Great is going to pop up. And he's going to die young. He's not going to have any kids. And his kingdom is going to be divided up between his four generals. Look at the detail of this prophecy. Now, the two that we need to focus on are the first two right there. Let's go to the next slide, please. This is what we're going to be focusing on here for the rest of the evening is what's going on. Can you guys go to the next slide? Take a look at the map here, and I'm going to leave this up. You can see we're going to talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, this is pretty straightforward. King of the south is Egypt. The king of the north is Syria. Now, Syria and Egypt don't get along. So guess what they do for the next couple hundred years? They just keep fighting each other. But look what's smack dab in the middle between Syria and Egypt. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this little ping pong ball that keeps getting hit back and forth, back and forth, 
between Egypt and Syria. So you may wonder, why did God spend all this detail in Daniel chapter 11? Because it deals with his kids. Have you ever run into a parent where the only thing they wanted to talk about was their child? Okay? Israel is God's child. He loves them. He loves them dearly, more than we can ever know, and he will never turn his back on Israel. And so what happens is Daniel, who is one of his children, is seeking the Lord and what's going to happen to Israel. So God gives him Daniel love and says, hey, for the next couple hundred years, this is everything that's happening to Israel. The detail in this chapter I cannot stress to you is amazing. Just keep remembering King of the north, Syria. King of the south, Egypt. Every time they fight and go back and forth, if Syria wants to invade Egypt, what does it have to do? Walk right through Jerusalem. If Egypt wants to invade Syria, what are they going to do? Walk right through Jerusalem. So poor little Jerusalem, Israel, is just in the middle of this mess. There's two big bullies that just keep fighting each other, and Israel's just the little guy in the middle that just keeps getting hit left and right and left and right. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. So we're going to leave this up here just to kind of remind you about this. So remember, south, Egypt, north, Syria. Verse 5, please. The king of the south shall become strong. Egypt becomes strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. You guys remember from history, power, Egypt. Verse 6, at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither nor he his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, but from a branch of her roots... One shall rise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and shall continue more years than the king of the north. Now follow this soap opera here, if you will, for a second. What happens here in verses 5 through 8? In verse 6, the king of the south, this guy's name is Ptolemy II. He has a daughter by the name of Bernice. So they try to make this a deal. Hey, let's quit fighting each other. So he says to Syria, you send me your son, Antiochus II. I'll give you my daughter, Bernice. And guess what? They'll get married. And so that's what will happen. We'll have peace. Verse 6, at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south. Look how detailed this is. Now here's the problem. Antiochus II was already married. He was married to this gal by the name of Laodice. So he divorces Laodice so that way he can marry Bernice. Now, this is not scriptural, but I think it's true. You've heard the phrase, hell hath no woman, hath no fury like a woman's sword. Laodice was so upset, she went and had Bernice killed. So she killed Bernice. Well, guess what verse 6 says? She shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. That phrase, shall be given up, NIV says not retain her power. That's really just a nice way to say she got killed. <laughs> so she's killed by the ex-wife. Well, what happens now is Laodice decides to remarry Antiochus for one sole purpose. She remarries him, and guess what she does? She then poisons him. And now she poisons him, and she puts her own son on the throne. This is all in verse 6, the detail of this. What happens then in verse 7, from a branch of her roots one shall rise in his place. Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, doesn't like this. His sister just got killed. So verse 7, he gets an army and he invades the north. In verse 7, and he wins. Verse 8, and he comes back victorious. Verses 6 through 8 have all that detail. They try to make an agreement. 
Bernice goes over, marries Antiochus II. Laodice, the ex-wife, kills Bernice. Laodice marries Antiochus II. She poisons him. Ptolemy II, Bernice's brother, says, you killed my sister. Verse 7, I invade you. God already knew this. God completely Now, I, I want to go back to our point from the beginning. If God knows this detail, why do we sit here and worry about little tiny things that are happening in Northwest Ohio? He's got it all under control. If he knows to this detail, he, he can take care of anything that is going on in your life. Anything. What happens in verse 9? Well, now Syria is upset. They just got whipped. So what happens is this guy by the name of Antiochus III, he's upset that his brother, Antiochus II, got killed. So what's he do in verse 9? He comes down from the north. And he tries to fight Egypt. That's what he does. Verses 9 through 15. Excuse me, verses 13. He creates an army and he comes and fights them. Verse 10, he gets a multitude. And it's a tough fight, so he gets a stronger multitude. But what happens in verse 11? The king of the south shall be moved with rage. And so he goes and fights a bigger army. Well, then what happens in verses 12 and 13? Finally, the north wins. So now Syria defeats Egypt. Now, as they're fighting back and forth here, don't skip over this, but look real quick in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. They're gathering an army, a bigger army, a bigger army. Once again, guess who's stuck in the middle of all these battles? If you have two armies from Syria and Egypt marching towards each other, guess where they're going to end up? They're going to end up right in Israel. Once again, this is why all this detail and all this information is here. Well, this is what happens now. Since they're constantly fighting in Israel, verse 14... Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, Egypt. Also violent men, look, of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. What happened was the Jews started thinking that Syria was the power. So the Jews aligned themselves with Syria. And they thought, okay, this guy Antiochus III, he's got this all figured out. We're going to align ourselves with him, and then we'll win. And this is all recorded in history. If you go check secular history, this is recorded that the Jews went with the side of the Syrians to fight the Egyptians. Well, problem is it doesn't work out so well. Verse 15, the king of the north does have some victories. But look at verse 16. He who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. Look, he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. So what happens now is Syria decides, hey, Jews, thanks for helping me out. We're just going to take you over right now. So as they take him over, he decides he wants to go one step further. Verse 17, he shall set his face to enter the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of a woman to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be with him. So what happened now is Egypt says, hey, let's try to make peace again. And guess how we're going to make peace? I'll give you my daughter again. Let's try this one more time. Well, verse 18, he shall turn his face towards the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. He should turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. He shall stumble and fall and not be found. Verse 18, real quick. If you're looking at Jerusalem, and he's turning his face towards the coastland, look there. If you're looking out across the Mediterranean Sea, what world power is now over there? Rome. This guy, Syria, kind of got a little big for his bridges, and he decided, hey, I'm going to take on Rome, verse 18. So as he went to go take on Rome, Rome basically kind of showed up and looked at him real quick and said, uh, you don't want to fight us. So since you don't want to fight us, and since we will just save all your guys, what we're going to do here now, if you check this out, verse 19... There shall arise one in his place who imposes taxes in the glorious kingdom. Rome just says, we're not going to fight you, but now we're just going to make you pay us tribute. Again and again and again. But what happens here in verse 20, Antiochus' son starts raising taxes. But look, he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall rise in his place one who imposes taxes. This is Antiochus' son on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed. 
but not in anger or in battle. Well, history tells us that this guy here, Antiochus' son, was killed. They didn't like him raising taxes. And once again, so since he raised taxes, he was then killed and he was poisoned. Not in anger, he wasn't stabbed, or in battle, he was poisoned. Once again, look at the detail in verse 20. He could have just said the guy died. No, where it's going to come out and say, not in anger or in battle, secular history tells us this guy was poisoned to death. That's how detailed everything is. Now, let's just stop for a second, because verse 21 changes scenes a little bit here. I know this is a lot of history, and some of you don't like history, and I already lost you about 10 minutes ago. But those that are still paying attention, I hope you see the detail here of what's going on, and you see how God knows every little detail. The verse that keeps coming to my head is those verses where God says, I know every hair on your head. And those verses where he says, I know when the sparrow falls, my goodness, how often in the world do we feel alone? No one understands. They don't know my struggles. They don't know what I'm going through. They don't know the depression I'm facing. They don't know the discouragement I'm facing. They don't know the sin battles I'm facing. God does. If he knows all these details, he knows absolutely everything going on in your life right now, and he's there to help you and encourage you. So let's just stop for a real quick second. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about what we covered here thus far before we get on to the rest of this? Yeah, Ron. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is it's Jerusalem is still there. Israel as a nation is really not existing. We're just kind of using that term Israel there. So sometimes it's Syria and sometimes it's Egypt. You can't really tell on the map. The way they have the map here, they have it both blue and also yellow. Depends who won the battle. At first it was Egypt, then it became Syria. They just keep trading back and forth depending on who wins the battle. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right, now we're introduced to this one guy, Antiochus IV. Now look at the description real quick. Verse 21, in his place shall rise a vile person. Now, anytime they start out describing you as a vile person, you know that's probably not a good description of who you are. If someone came up to me and I said, hey, um, what do you think of Bill? Oh, Bill, he's a vile person. That's not a great way to start a conversation about somebody. This guy, Antiochus IV, this guy's a nasty person. This guy's so nasty, in fact, he's considered a precursor to the Antichrist. That's how bad this guy is. So this guy back in uh, Daniel 8, we've already been prophesied about. This guy's so bad... Once again, precursor to the Antichrist. What happens here, in his place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. History tells us Antiochus IV was actually not the next person in line to take over the Syrian Empire. He worked his way in. So he works his way in by intrigue. So what happens then, as he now starts taking this power, as he now starts doing this type of stuff, let's see what he does. Verse 21, and his place shall rise a vile person, like we said, verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. He's got power. And so in this power, he starts going out and doing things. So what's he do with this power? Verse 24, he enters peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he does what his fathers have not done. He plunders, verse 24, he spoils, he takes riches. Now, verse 25, he gets a lot of courage, so he decides to take on Egypt. And he goes down and he takes on Egypt and he defeats them. And as he defeats them, this is what Egypt does. Egypt says, we can't really beat him in battle, so let's make peace. This is a really interesting thing in history. Verse 26, this is a strange verse. Yet those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Verse 27, these hearts, kings, shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. Once again, details here. History teaches us what happened is Egypt and Syria met in battle. Egypt kind of said, we can't beat these guys, so let's make peace. So what happened is they sat down at the same table. And as they sat down at the same table, Egypt promised all these things. We're going to make peace. We're going to work this all out. And it was one big lie to get Syria to remove their army. So Syria removes his army. They head back. 
And as they head back, Antiochus IV has one of those little light bulb moments. And as he's heading back, he goes, I just got fooled. So verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So he's down here in Egypt. He's walking back now to Syria. Halfway back to Syria, he realizes, I just got fooled. And guess what? He's ticked. So you know what he does when he's ticked? He's the type of guy that sees the dog, so he kicks the dog. He's the type of guy that sees the wall, so he punches the wall. He's the type of guy that sees the book, he picks it up and he throws it. He's walking back to Syria. He's ticked that he just got defeated, not in battle, but by deceit. He's walking through Jerusalem, so what's he doing in verse 28? He takes out all his anger on the Jews. Now, the Jews are his little kicking thing, if you will. Well, now, guess what? Typical man. He feels slighted. So now he needs to go out and prove how powerful he really is. So what he decides to do in verse 29 and 30, he decides, I'm going to go and fight again. Verse 30. Now he goes and he gets ready to make this army, but guess what happens in verse 30? For some ships from Cyprus or Katem, depending on your translation, shall come against him, and he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant. This is a fascinating story in history. He gets his army around, and he goes ready down now to fight Egypt again. Guess who shows up in verse 30? Rome. Because Rome made a deal with Egypt. And as they made a deal with Egypt, Rome shows up. And Rome just shows up, and they run an Antiochus. They very simply tell Antiochus, you're not going to fight Egypt. And they said, you either fight us, or you leave and go home. Antiochus said, I want some time to think about this. And I love this story from history. You should just check this out. And I can't remember who the Roman leader was at the time. Antiochus was standing in the sand. He went and put a circle around Antiochus' feet. And he very simply said, you need to make a decision before you step out of the circle. That's the power of Rome. So guess what happened? Verse 30, he becomes grieved and he returns in rage. Why? Because he just got knocked down again. So Antiochus is ticked again, so what does he do? He walks back home, and as he walks back home, he walks through Jerusalem, and look what he does. He returns in rage against the Holy Covenant and does damage. He shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He walks through Israel again, and he says, I'm sick and tired of this, and he takes everything out. And now he's furious. Verse 31, he brings his army into Israel. He takes away the daily sacrifices. He does the abomination of desolation. Look at all the stuff that he does. He defiles the sanctuary of the fortress, verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. What happens here is he goes ahead and he tries to take out Israel completely. According to history, he just walks through with his army and just slays tens of thousands of Jews. Just completely annihilates them. So, And then he goes into the temple, and you've heard this story before. He does two things in the temple. As it says in verse 31, he takes away the daily sacrifices, the abomination of desolation. And so what happens is he takes the statue of Zeus, he places it on the altar, and then he also takes a pig and he sacrifices it on the altar. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, bacon is bad. So what happened here is by him taking a pig and sacrificing it on the altar, it's the most despicable thing he could do. The most despicable thing he could do. By taking a statue of Zeus and setting it on the altar, basically, where's your God? Well, what happens is, verse 32, those who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Well, there becomes this rebellious group of Jews known as the remembers the Maccabees so the Maccabees do this little hate to use the word terrorist type thing they do this guerrilla warfare where they go up and they hide in the mountains come down and attack go up in the mountains and they just keep doing this this tiny little force of Jews is taking on the entire Syrian army and guess what happens the Maccabees win look at verse 32 they carry out great exploits 
but not only winning militarily. Verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. History tells us the Syrians were so angry they just killed everybody. The Maccabees would keep fighting, though. Verse 34, Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, that many shall join their help by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So now that stops. See that phrase there, because it's still for the appointed time? That tells us that history lesson is done. Verse 36 now starts prophecy. But you need to know this thing about the Maccabees. We have in a couple weeks here, Hanukkah is coming up. And this is where Hanukkah comes from. And Hanukkah is in these verses here, in verses 34, 34, and 35. Because when the Maccabeans came back and they retook the temple, they didn't know if they were going to have enough oil to keep the light going, to keep the flame going. And that's the story behind Hanukkah, is the Maccabees here coming and doing this revolt against Antiochus IV. Now, once again, verses 36 on is now all prophecy. Because what happens on verse 36, we start talking about the literal Antichrist, and we use that as a stepping stone from Antiochus IV, which was the little Antichrist, if you will. The Bible called him the little horn. Now, I've got some final points here to make, but does anybody have any final questions, comments here about Antiochus IV and what happened here? Oh. Well, then don't raise your hand, because I said it, it had to be about Antiochus. No, see, now, see, I don't want to argue with you publicly. I don't like doing this. This is not fun, man. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, this, this stuff right here, I don't know of any other place, because when you're dealing with, um, take Isaiah, for example, Isaiah is all pre Kings and Chronicles. Uh, Jeremiah, Kings and Chronicles. Lamentations, Kings and Chronicles. Uh, Ezekiel is much more future. So this stuff right here in Daniel 11, as far as I know, if someone else knows differently, this is unique only to Daniel chapter 11. I don't know of this stuff being any other place in the Bible. Good question. Anybody else got anything here about what we talked about here thus far? Now, here's the final things. Can you go back to the uh, first slide real quick there, please? It is really easy, once again, when you're overwhelmed with uh, King of the South, King of the North, um, Ptolemy, Antiochus IV, and all this other type of stuff. I can't stress this to you enough, and I, and I want to stress this to the point of making you get it, but I can't do that. When you read these 35 verses that we just read, the detail that is given in these verses is utterly impressive. Detail to the point of this guy is going to die, but not by anger or battle. Well, he was poisoned. That there's going to be this gal that's given in marriage, but then she's going to be killed, and there's going to be this other person that's going to be killed. This soap opera stuff here is just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Now, verse 22, I even forgot to mention this. It says, With the force of a flood they shall be swept away, and before him be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. What happened there in the prince of the covenant, I forgot to mention this, is uh, that was the high priest at the time, Onesis III. It was actually given in prophecy that Onesis was going to be destroyed here because he was the high priest at the time. All of this detail is absolutely amazing. And let me repeat the verses one more time where it talks about how God says, I know the hair on your head. I know when the sparrow falls. If God knows those things, let's not let worry get the best of us. And this is what I want to close with. I keep on repeating those verses. Let's just turn there. And this is what we'll finish up with. Can you go to Matthew chapter 6, please? Matthew 6. You've heard me make this comment before, so forgive me for the repetition, but one of the biggest sins in the body of Christ is the sin of worrying. Because worrying is a sin because basically what worrying is saying is I don't have faith in God. So since I don't have faith in God, I need to be worried about how this situation is going to turn out. Worrying is a sin. Now, problem is with worrying You've heard me joke about this. We make it like some genetic trait. My mom was a worrier, so I'm a worrier. My parents always worried growing up, so I worry too. You did not inherit the gene of worrying. Worrying is something you choose to do because you look at the situation you are facing and your faith in God disappears. 
So since your faith in God disappears, you then begin to worry. Now, we all struggle with it. And I'm not going to sit up here and say, I don't get worked up about stuff. I'm not going to sit here and say, I don't worry about stuff. But we have to get to the point of where we realize worrying is a sin. Too often we look at worrying as just human nature. That's just what we do. How do we know it's a sin? Verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Very simply put, if Jesus told me not to do it, and I do it, I'm not obeying Christ. That's a sin. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Let's just be honest. How many times have we worried about the diagnosis from the doctors? How often have we worried about, is the money going to come in? How often have we worried about, is that job going to be there for me? How often am I worried about, am I going to meet the right person to marry? Faith. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? Verse 27, which of you worrying can add one cubit to a stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Now you may say, I don't worry about clothing. Clothing there is just a, a word to describe the needs you have in life. You may not worry about clothing, but do you worry about finances? Do you worry about debt? Do you worry about your car? Do you worry about this? God says, I take care of it. The lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, tomorrow's thrown in the oven, we're, we're, we're reaching fall, frost, all those beautiful spring flowers are now what? Completely dead. Guess what's going to happen next year? It'll pop right back up. Thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things, after these things, the Gentiles seek. Gentile, there is a term just for non-believers. For your heavenly fathers know that you need all these things. See, how many times in your prayer life, and I've done this too, am I trying to convince God of what I need? Lord, you know I'm struggling with this. Lord, you know I need this. You know I need this. He, he already knows what I need. God is not up there in heaven saying, I forgot to give the Irvin family food. He, he already knows. He will take care of it. So when something happens at work that throws you for a little bit of a tizzy, God already knew that. When something happens at life that throws you for a little bit, God already knew that. He says, don't worry about it. Verse 32, excuse me, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I always tell people this first. If you put God first, everything else falls into place. Seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Those are pretty self-explanatory verses. But to bring it back full circle to prophecy, if God already knew the details of Daniel 11, 1 through 35, I guarantee he knows what's going on in your life. I guarantee that he has your life in his hands, and he says, don't worry. David, you beg to differ. Okay, this is going to be great. Well, yeah, you're worried about your eternal state, yes. Yeah. If you're, if you're not saved, if you're not a believer, if you're not following God, then, then I would say you're, you're past the point of worry. You should be fearful. And I, don't, and I don't say that to hellfire and brimstone, but Hebrews makes it very clear. Um, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Obviously here, what Jesus is talking to us in Matthew 6 is he's speaking to his children, to his believers. And if you're not a child of God, there's a lot of things to be worried about. You know, I, I've shared before in messages that Romans 8:28 that in all things God works for the good of those that love him that are called according to his purposes. And I've heard many people say, hey, you know what? They're going through a difficult time. But I told them anything that's happened in your life, God's going to use that for good. 
Well, if they're not saved, that promise is not to non-believers. I've seen a lot of non-believers have a lot of horrible situations happen in their life, and I can't find good in it because they made a choice that has ramifications. Now, as a child of God, as a believer, Romans 8.28 promises me that it's going to be good. I may not see the good, but it will. But if you're not walking with the Lord, you're basically saying, I take my own life into my own hands, and I will just be the master of my own domain. Oh, my goodness. Scary place to be. That should be worried about. Good point there. Carly, get your hand up. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you look at the repetition of the word fear not, if God is telling us to fear not, to me, there's two things he's telling me. Number one, he knows I am going to fear. That's why he has to keep telling me not to fear. And number two, he says, I got it under control. Trust me. Trust me. If he, once again, if he knows Daniel 11, 1 through 35, he knows everything that's going to happen. Anybody else have anything they want to say before I close up? Alrighty, you made it through Daniel 11, 1 through 35. I promise you, starting in verse 36, that's a lot easier to digest. Now, if next Wednesday there's only 20 people here, I guess I understand that. But stick with me. It's going to be good there, I'll tell you that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God that knows the hairs on our head, that you know when the sparrow falls, that you are a God that knows every detail of our life. Thank you, Lord, for being a God that is there for us, that meets our needs. If there's someone here tonight struggling with fear, worry, or anxiety, I pray you would take that away in the name of Jesus. Replace it with faith, and just, Lord, help us to walk in faith. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.